0: Jose Mourinho is one of the most successful football managers in history. Despite never competing at the highest level as a player, as a manager, Mourinho has consistently turned good teams into the world's best. He's done so by signing fantastic players, by mastering tactics, but also by using psychological mind games to motivate his players and undermine his opposition. In this episode, you'll learn why Mourinho did it and if his mind games really worked. But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C Pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C Pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So, listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Undoubtedly, Jose Mourinho is one of the world's greatest football managers. He's won FIFA Coach of the Year, Portuguese Coach of the Century, and a whole host of trophies that put him in the top echelon of managers. But this podcast isn't about sports, so why am I talking about Mourinho? Well, there are a few interesting things about him. First, he never reached the highest level of football as a player, which is fairly rare for a top manager. Looking back at the FIFA World Coaches of the Year, only two of the other coaches who have won that award failed to play in one of the top five European leagues, Jose Mourinho and the other being Thomas Tuchel. He also has a history of taking teams that aren't quite at the highest level and transforming them into champions, famously winning the Champions League with with Porto and Inter Milan, two major surprises. He also won Chelsea's first league title in 50 years, won the Spanish League by 100 points, a record at the time, and continued this streak, winning Roma's first trophy in 11 years last summer. Now look, There is no doubt that he achieved these things by signing incredible players and by outsmarting his opponents with his tactics, but there is a third pillar to his success, his mind games. See, Jose Mourinho is famed for his psychological approach to the game, using press conferences, team talks and interviews to undermine his opposition and motivate his team. Jose acknowledges this himself, saying everything he does is mind games.
1: With me it's also mind games, you know. With me it's also mind games. Everything I say is mind games, everything I do is mind games, everything is mind games, you know. The only thing that is not mind games is, uh, is the results. That's not mind games.
0: Now let me just first clarify what a mind game is because the term isn't widely used. It's sort of defined as a psychological manipulative behaviour intended to discomfort another person or gain an advantage over them. Today, I'll look at how he attempted to use this psychological manipulation, as it's defined, to get an edge on his opponents, but also to motivate his own team. I've spent the last few weeks trawling through Mourinho's press conferences and I've highlighted a few themes, a few common approaches that Mourinho clearly tries to apply at every single team he joins and I'll walk through each one on this podcast. I'll also explore if Mourinho's persuasion and motivational techniques can be applied to other fields, if you can use what he uses and apply it in business or other fields like that. I'll share what you can learn from Mourinho's approach and what you should avoid. But quick disclaimer, Mourinho is one of a kind and he's working in a particularly nuanced field of sports football management. Just because some approaches might work for him, it definitely doesn't mean that it'll work elsewhere. Okay, to kick off, I'll start by sharing easily the most common approach that Jose takes when managing a team. It is an approach that he attempts to apply usually when he joins a club to try and achieve success straight away. His approach aims to build confidence in his team extremely quickly. He attempts to build confidence in himself. He wants the players and the media to quickly believe he's a winner. And he also attempts to build the confidence of his team, making the players believe they have what it takes to win. He does this in a very simple way. He does it through signalling. So, what is signalling? Well, the basic definition of signalling is to convey information, belief, and trust by means of a gesture, an action, or a sound. You'll spot signalling in biology. Springboks do something called stotting, they jump up and down on the spot. So you'll see springboks in the wild just jumping up and down on the spot and this seems irrational. It wastes energy. It seems like a dumb thing to do. Wasting energy means the springboks need to eat more and it means they'll be more fatigued if they're chased by prey. But stotting acts as a signal that the springbok is young and that it's not worth chasing. So predators, such as the cheetah, won't chase a springbok that it sees stotting. By signalling its strength, the springbok changes the perception of others and achieves something, not getting eaten by prey, in a different way, in a unique way, just by jumping up and down rather than actually having to outsmart, outmaneuver the cheetah. There are many types of signals in the natural world. Honest signals like the yellow-banded poison dart frog, Now, this frog gives off a signal that it is toxic with its neon yellow bands across its skin. This warns off predators and stops the frog from getting attacked. There are also costly signals, signals that cost an animal. So a peacock's feathers signal their reproductive fitness with a large, colourful tail. But the tail is essentially a handicap. It weighs the animal down and limits its movement. But because the signal is costly, because it's so difficult to move around with this tail, it actually carries more meaning and makes the peacock even more attractive to mates. Of course, signalling doesn't just stop with animals. All of us give off signals to convey information about ourselves. You'll see this. People signal their wealth, and they do this by wearing Rolex watches, driving expensive cars, or holidaying in Monaco on an expensive yacht. Jose Mourinho signals to build confidence. And he does so, I think, in arguably the simplest way. He just tells everyone that he is the best in the world, that he is incredibly talented, and that he literally is the special one. Here's Mourinho in his first press conference after joining Chelsea in
1: 2004. I think with the same mentality as I, as I have. They love football, as I love. They want to win like I want to win. We have top players. And um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit arrogant, we have a top manager. Again, don't, please don't call me arrogant because what I, I'm saying is true. I'm European champion, so I'm not one of, of the bottle. I'm a, I think I'm a special one.
0: Now, Mourinho's choice of words here, it isn't by accident. It's calculated. Mourinho has planned to say this. Why? Because he wants to signal his competence. He wants others to believe he is extremely talented. Now, of course, he's got evidence to back this up. He has just won the Champions League, which is the biggest competition in Europe, and he did so with a fairly small side, Porto from Portugal. But really, it was still absurd for him to call himself the special one. He has only had really two successful seasons as a manager, which pales in comparison to the two other leading managers in English football, who are Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger, both of whom have been winning trophies for over a decade in the English League. So this for Jose Mourinho is not only a bit absurd, but it's arguably a costly signal. He is putting his reputation on the line. He is opening himself up to criticism. By saying I'm the special one, as soon as he has that first loss or that first draw, he's going to get far more criticism than if he had just acted normally in the press conference. And now most of us would be too frightened to share the same level of confidence as Jose. We'd be afraid that it would come back to bite us. We would fret over what people would say if we started to fail. But by taking this risk, Jose is signalling his confidence. He's starting to build the confidence of the fans and build the confidence of his players. Here's what legendary Chelsea midfielder Frank Lampard thought after hearing Jose Mourinho's first press conference. I think it was smart. I think it was a very clever press conference in the English culture in the Premier League. It's not probably the norm that a manager announces himself with such confidence. And it also was a message to the club and to the players that he was coming in, that he's coming in with confidence and he's coming in to be a winner. Mourinho took a risk by calling himself the special one. But in doing so, he bolstered the confidence of his team. But that's hardly where the signalling ends. Here's Joe Cole, another former Chelsea player, who shares what Mourinho said to his players when he first met them. He first spoke to us as a team. He outlined the date when we would win the league away at Bolton. He said, look, I've come here to win. And he listed the players in the dressing room who'd won things, and there wasn't many. He said, I'm a champion. And, you know, if you follow me, you'll be champions. Just think about that. He names the exact date when they'll win the league. Now, none of the Chelsea players who he's talking to in this scenario had won the English Premier League before. Chelsea, as a team, hadn't won the Premier League in 50 years. But Mourinho signals his confidence by saying, here's the exact date we will win the league. Mourinho is a master of signalling. He took calculated risks to build confidence and he did things that others wouldn't dare to do. He continues this strategy throughout his first season with Chelsea. In one press conference, to signal the confidence he has in his team, he decides to give away his team sheet. He names all of the players who will start for Chelsea in the game on the following night. Now, this is extremely uncommon. I couldn't find another example of a manager doing this before Mourinho. But Mourinho takes this risk because he knows it will signal confidence. He also goes on to predict the team of his opponent, showcasing that his confidence over what their team will be as well. And it's really another example of a costly signal. He's weakening his chances of winning the game by giving away his team sheet. So the opposition manager will know who he's going to play and be able to structure his team around that. But he does so to build confidence. He bets that the tactics will be secondary in this game, and that his team's confidence will be more important. So he takes the risk. And this risk it pays off. The press conference was prior to arguably Chelsea's hardest match of the season against Barcelona and Chelsea went on to win the two-legged tie 5-4 on aggregate. Now I think many of you might hear this and assume that Jose Mourinho is a little self-obsessed, that he is perhaps egotistic. You might say he's not playing mind games, he's just trying to boost his ego. Now I think there's an element of truth in that but I also think it's more nuanced because Mourinho is not afraid to blame himself when needed. He adapts his approach and will take blame when the time is right.
1: There is only one to blame, which is me. I am the responsible for the team. I am the responsible for the players that are on the pitch. So there is only one to blame is myself.
0: Now, this is a fairly solid motivational strategy that I think other managers in other industries could replicate. Using signals to build trust and motivate your team is smart. Perhaps you won't be as bullish as Mourinho, but stating your absolute confidence in your team and your concrete belief that they will succeed is, well, it's proven to be a good strategy. It'll bolster confidence and you'll see successful leaders across politics, business and sports use this tactic. But importantly, Mourinho matches it with a little bit of humility. The ability to take the pressure off his players and take the blame for himself. This is vital for any manager. Declaring pure confidence in a team only works when the results are good, when you're winning. During a period of bad results, it's vital that the manager takes responsibility. Mourinho goes even further though. He uses another tactic to completely take the pressure off his team. And this, well I think this is a bit of a novel one. He makes the press conferences all about himself. He focuses the media attention on himself in whatever way possible. He's done this in the past by sharing how much he misses his dog, by sporting a shaved head and declaring in the press conference that he's going to war, and even by using weird analogies about omelettes and blurred flu. Now for a journalist at the press conference, this might seem random and unnecessary and cause you to write a headline about what on earth he's on about, but I reckon it's very calculated. Mourinho does this to remove the focus from his players and really just let them relax. They are no longer the main news story. Mourinho and his press conferences are instead. And that gives the players a chance to relax, but also to focus solely on the game. Here's an example from midway through the first season at Chelsea, right after the League Cup final.
1: You
2: sound as though you're feeling the pressure.
1: I'm not feeling the pressure, no. You cannot put pressure on me. No chance. No chance. I, I, I read a lot of times during this week that I have to prove a lot in English football. <sighs> Sir Alex is the only one European champion in this country. Nobody else. So I have to prove what? Congratulations. Well Thanks today. a lot.
0: Mourinho invites the pressure. He's happy when all the focus is on him and not his players. So he repeatedly gains and attracts the media attention through signalling. But signalling isn't the only mind game that Mourinho uses. There are two others that he comes back to time and time again throughout his career. I'll walk through them after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. In psychology, there is a field of research into something called reactance. Reactance is the unpleasant feeling all of us feel when something is taken away from us. That could be a child crying when they can't play with a certain toy, or an adult complaining when they're told to stop working from home and go to the office. When our options become limited, we start to feel uneasy. A 2005 study called Deflecting Reactants" looked at what happens after certain activities were taken away from individuals. They looked at things that people used to be able to conduct freely, like smoking in a restaurant, and explored what happened when they were made illegal. The paper concludes that when people are told they can't do something, a boomerang effect takes place and the forbidden activities become even more compelling and even more alluring. But simply, if you tell someone they can't do something, they are far more motivated to do it. The researchers concluded that one way to increase an activity is just to censor it, just to tell people that you're unable to do this. In turn, a boomerang effect occurs and people will will opt for those activities that they're not allowed. Now, some of you might know this as the Barbara Streisand effect. In 2003, the award-winning singer attempted to stop a photo of her Malibu residence from being in a report on coastal erosion. So she didn't want people to see this photo. But in trying to ban people from viewing this photo of her property, she only encouraged people to share it. The image became a bit of a meme with millions, literally millions of people sharing it online as widely as possible in things like viral videos and spoof songs. The Streisland effect is an example of psychological reactance. Once people are told not to do something, they only want to do it more. One other study cited in The Art of Thinking Clearly asked students to arrange 10 posters in order of attractiveness, with the agreement that afterwards they could keep one poster as a reward for their participation in the study. Five minutes after arranging the posters, the students were told that the poster with the third highest rating – was no longer available. The researcher said, sorry, that third one, you you can't have that one. They were then asked to judge all 10 posters, including the one they weren't allowed to take home from scratch. So cancel that previous ranking you had given it and, and redo it. And what they found was the poster that was no longer available, the one they couldn't take home, suddenly was classified as the most beautiful. People switched and said, no, this is no longer my third most attractive. This is actually the best one. And it was simply because the researchers said, you can't pick it. This is reactance. When we are deprived of something, we suddenly deem it more attractive. We want it more. Mourinho loved using reactance. He loved to tell his team that people didn't think they could do something, that the other team didn't expect them to win. He wanted to trigger reactance to motivate his team. Here's an example from a Mourinho team talk. It is halftime during a crucial game with Manchester City. He is managing Tottenham Hotspurs at the time. At halftime, the game is nil-nil. To motivate his team, he decides to use reactants. He criticises his team, telling them that they are perceived as good guys and that they are perceived as not having the guts to win. We are in the game.
2: We are giving them a good fight.
1: The result is there, to go to one side or to another side.
2: But try to understand what I want to say. I think when you save the penalty, they try to put huge pressure for another penalty to be be given. This is the difference between a team of and a team of good guys. But the story of football is that the teams of good guys they never win. So fucking out. Be a and the way the game is going, they know Toby has a yellow card. I promise you, they know. I promise you. And I have to say that Kyle Walker has a yellow card, Zinchenko has a yellow card, Sterling has a yellow card. So be a, don't be a good guy.
0: By accusing his team of being good guys, by telling them that that's what people think they are, he sparks this reactance in his team. They want to prove him wrong. Nobody wants to be a good guy who wins nothing. They would rather be the bad guy who won. Tottenham, after hearing this team talk, went on to win the game 2-0, beating the champions at the time, Manchester City, and this is arguably Tottenham's best win of the season. Mourinho uses reactance again in his press conferences. This is an example back from his time with Chelsea and he accuses the press of having a campaign against his striker, Diego Costa.
1: I think that maybe you are already influenced by... by. A, I'm going to use a word that put me in trouble, uh, but I think this time I cannot be punished to say that there is a campaign on the television with a certain pundit that is, is saying... Diego Costa crimes. This guy must be must be nuts. The guy that is saying that, that must be nuts.
0: It's another smart tactic. By claiming there's a campaign against Chelsea and a campaign against his player, he's able to motivate his team. He's saying to his player, the world is against you. Everyone wants you to lose. And in doing so, he's building that reactance. His players become more motivated because of it. Costa went on to be the top goalscorer for Chelsea that year. That said, Mourinho is not afraid to undermine and taunt other teams. He famously called his rival manager, Arsene Wenger, a specialist in failure. He taunted Wenger's star striker, Thierry Henry, saying, you only score against small clubs. What's interesting is that this taunting often works against Mourinho. It causes reactance, but in his opposition. Thierry Henry, after hearing Mourinho say that he only scores against small clubs, famously went on to score against Mourinho's side. Here's what the Arsenal striker Thierry Henry said in a press conference after scoring against Mourinho's Chelsea.
2: Well, like usual, like everyone says, I scored. I always scored in small games. So uh, <laughs> I
0: think today must have been a small game again. So Mourinho's reactance tactic also works against him by taunting Thierry Henry saying you only score against small sides. He's motivating him and Henry scored twice in that game and Arsenal drew with Chelsea. I think this reveals a weakness with Mourinho. He can't help himself in press conferences. He's not always calculated with his use of reactance and his use of signalling. He's constantly using these principles all the time. And because he's constantly using them, they can often backfire. I think this is one thing all of us can take away from this podcast. Using these principles to influence, persuade and motivate can work, but not if they're used endlessly. Eventually, they'll start to lose their potency or backfire on you. After a while, the shock or surprise of hearing a manager call themselves the special one or name the date when they'll win the league it'll lose its potency and it won't motivate in the way it originally did. Arguably, you could look at Mourinho's career trajectory and actually see this playing out. His first 10 years of his career were far more successful than the last 10 years. He's gone from frequently winning multiple trophies a season to only winning one trophy in the previous five years. But there is one more tactic that Mourinho uses which I think is still relevant today a tactic that should continue to motivate his team no matter how much he uses it. It is reframing. Now reframing involves essentially explaining a situation in a different way to help his players look at a problem from another angle. By reframing something, you can change someone's perception. Steve Jobs loved reframing. Here's an example of when he used it. He begged his first iPod engineers to make the iPod smaller. Now, they complained, saying there is simply no way they could make it any smaller. It is impossible. So Steve Jobs decided to reframe the problem. He picked up the iPod prototype and dropped it in a fish tank in his office. And then he watched bubbles come out. He said, look, if there's bubbles coming out, there's still space to make it smaller. This subtle or not so subtle reframing made the impossible seem possible. The iPod designers, after seeing this, did manage to make the iPod slightly smaller, so it was actually small enough to fit in a pocket. Here's an example of some subtle reframing from earlier in Mourinho's career. It's in a pre game team talk with the Chelsea side during his first season at Chelsea.
1: After that, the last defensive lock is the three attackers against the four defenders. So defensively, it's easy to analyse, it's easy to control. And you cannot concede goals playing, the, the, the playing this way. We have to play for a result. They play for a result, we have to play for a result. We cannot lose again. I'm not putting pressure on you about uh, we have to win. I don't want to put that kind of, of pressure, but we cannot lose. We cannot lose.
0: So, did you hear it? The subtle reframing? See, most managers would say we should win this game we should hit this target, we should reach our goals. But that can place a lot of pressure on your team. So Mourinho reframes it. He just says, you cannot lose. I love this reframing because you can imagine how it completely takes the pressure off the players. Rather than going into a game worried about if they'll hit the goal the manager has set, they go in with the pressure off, knowing they can't lose, but they should aim to win. Here's a slightly different example, a half-time team talk while Mourinho is Tottenham's manager. Here, he reframes the situation for the team, stating that winning the game will make or break the season. Suddenly, it's not just about one game and one result, it's about whole years of work. Here it is.
2: If any one of you feels a little bit of fatigue, you had three days to rest, they have two days to rest. I don't think it's fatigue. I don't think it is. If you need a little bit of pressure to be better, I give you an honest little bit of pressure. I think if we don't win the game, it's over. It's over. Forget fourth, forget fifth. It's over. Our ambitions today, they can finish. And then we are going to have one more month with uh, seven more matches to to play with a shit feeling. You have to give more. You have to give more. I can tell you 1,000 details where you have to give more.
0: All of us can do this in our jobs. If we're not motivated, if we're struggling to achieve a goal, we can reframe that goal. We can focus on the bigger picture. Ask yourself, what does all of this achieve? Zoom out and look at how important one small step might be towards reaching that larger goal. This is a great motivational tactic for individuals and also for managers. And it worked for Mourinho. Mourinho's team went on to win that game 2-0. Jose Mourinho declared himself that everything he did was mind games. And whether you agree with that or not, you have to admit that he is a unique character. No other manager has commanded our attention more. Now, there is no stat I could find to prove this, but I'd place a bet that no manager has been written about more than Mourinho in the past 20 years. He captures attention. I took a look at Google Trends to see searches for the three top managers in world football, so Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola and Carlo Ancelotti. And despite only winning one trophy in the past five years, there were more Google searches for Mourinho than those three other top managers. He had 20% more searches than Jurgen Klopp, two times more than Pep Guardiola, and five times more than Carlos Ancelotti. He captured the world's attention and arguably still has it. But I don't just think he's a media darling. I genuinely feel the psychological principles he uses to motivate gave his team the edge, at least at the start of his career. And it was three principles in particular that seemed to work for him. He used signalling to build the confidence of his players. He used reactants to motivate his players and turn around a poor performance. And he used reframing to persuade his players to perform at their best. That said, I'm not sure how applicable these principles are to the rest of us in normal jobs. Mourinho is a one-of-a-kind in a unique setting. There is no way you would build confidence in your team by declaring that you're the special one and you definitely shouldn't tell your manager that there is a campaign against a member of your team. Ultimately, I don't think we should look at Mourinho for applicable advice. But nevertheless, it's still worth remembering how Mourinho used these principles, because undoubtedly, someone in another field will attempt to do the same thing again. And next time it happens, before you lament them for being egotistic or self-obsessed, you might just spot the method behind the madness. Okay, folks, that is all for today. I, well I really hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode is, well it's very different from usual. Usually on Nudge I I focus on a specific principle or, or ask a guest to walk through their research, but this is different from the normal shows. I've focused on one individual and explored how they've used nudges and psychological principles to motivate, influence and persuade. I've got a few more episodes like this lined up. So, Before I publish those, I'd love to know what you think of the episodes. You can tweet me at P underscore Agnew. That's P underscore A G N E W. Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there. Message me on either of those platforms to, to let me know what you think. Now, as you can imagine, these shows take a lot of time to put together. They involve heaps of research, lots of time writing scripts, and lots of time rewriting those scripts as well. So if you did enjoy this show, please please do me a favor and hit subscribe wherever you listen to Nudge so you won't miss another show. You can also sign up to my newsletter. Just go to www.nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu and you can sign up there. I'll send you an email every time a new show goes live and I'll send you some extra psychology inspired tips in your inbox every week. Okay that is all from me this week. Thank you so much for listening join me again in a few weeks for another episode of Nudge.